All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. We praise and thank you for the salvation we enjoy through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit of God in inspiring Scripture and preserving it to us this very day. Bless us as we continue in the book of Acts this evening, that our hearts and minds will be open and attuned to what you're saying. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are looking at page 39 in our notes. Page 39. We have been looking at Paul as he's come to Jerusalem now, at the end of his third missionary journey. His plan was to come there and then to go to Rome. Well, he's going to go to Rome, but not exactly as he thought he would go to Rome. Uh, He had planned, as he says in the book of Romans, which he has already written a few weeks before this, that he wanted to go to Rome and have them serve as his base uh, to the furthest parts of the empire. Uh, He talks there in Romans chapter 1 that the he is, you know, called to give the gospel to both Greeks and barbarians. And that barbarians probably refers to the remotest parts of the Roman Empire. And so he's thinking about moving west and all that. But as we see, unfortunately, at least humanly speaking, but obviously this is all part of God's plan, Paul is arrested in the temple. Remember, he's accused of taking an Ephesian Trophimus across the balustrade. That was just a trumped-up charge, you remember. He really didn't do anything like that. And uh, so he's there in the court of the Gentiles, and uh, the troops come down from the Fortress Antonio down here, and they sort of rescue Paul. And Paul, uh, as he's been taking up to the fort, remember he's allowed somewhere around in this area to give a defense. Uh, somewhere, a a defense, as he's being taken up into the fort, uh, a defense of what is going on. And and so the soldiers are there. But Paul is speaking in Aramaic. So they don't understand Aramaic, and they don't understand what Paul is saying. And you remember, that doesn't end very well. Um, uh, When Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 22 that God told him, I will send you away to the Gentiles. The crowd, verse 22, listened to Paul until he said this, and they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Because God, our God, would not send anybody off to the Gentiles. That's, you know, obviously that's not the case. This guy's some heretic. He's not fit to live. So that doesn't work out too well. So they take him up to the fortress Antonia, and Paul is about to be examined under torture, remember, and Paul claims his Roman citizenship. And the poor commander doesn't know what to do, so he decides that he will bring Paul before the Sanhedrin, the official Jewish legal body there, and have try to let him talk to the Sanhedrin and let's figure out what's going on here, what Paul has done, what's going on. And so we're looking at 
Acts 22:30 through 23:11, which is on page 39 here, Paul's defense before the Sanhedrin. And uh, we notice that Paul is probably in this area of the Temple Mount and the Stoa, the royal Stoa there. This is probably where we think the Sanhedrin would have been uh, meeting at this particular time. So Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, and Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 23, uh, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience of this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike uh, to, uh, to strike him on the mouth. Um, so, as I say here, this statement by Paul that he has fulfilled his duty in all good conscience enraged the high priest so that in violation of the law, the Old Testament law, he ordered that those near Paul strike him on the mouth. As I say here, Jewish law safeguarded the rights of defendants and presumed them innocent until proven guilty. So he shouldn't have been uh, struck or anything like that. This is Ananias. We know about this man, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned as high priest from 48 to around 58 or 59. Uh, as I say, he was known for his avarice. <coughs> He was known for his liberal use of violence. Now, the Romans sort of controlled the priesthood. I mean, they you had to have the approval of the priest of the Romans to hold the office of high priest. Now, the high priest was a descendant of Aaron and so forth. That's true. But uh, the, the, the high priest, this was a political thing now, and so you had to have the support of the Roman officials to become high priest. This man is known for his, as I say, his violence, his uh, avarice. The Jewish historian Josephus talks a lot about him and says how that he confiscated the tithes that were supposed to go to the Levites. Remember in the Old Testament, the Levites were supposed to be given the tithe and the priests and so forth. He would confiscate those for himself, uh, Josephus says. Uh he gave bribes to the Romans to keep them happy. He gave bribes to other Jews, we're told. He collaborated with the Romans in every way. He, he owed his appointment to them. So Paul then says, after he struck on the mouth, Paul said to him, that is the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, Yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So as I say, Paul lashes out at Ananias and accused him of breaking the Jewish law, which safeguard the rights of defendants presumed innocent. Uh, so Paul had not been charged with a crime at this point, uh, let alone tried and found guilty. So he shouldn't have been struck or suffered any punishment at this point. Um... Uh, Anyone who behaved as Ananias did, as Paul saw it, you know, he sees this guy saying, strike him, uh, was somebody who would come under God's judgment. Uh, you, you judge me, but you violate the law. And so he sees this person, you know, it, it looks like Paul kind of lost his cool here for a moment, just to be honest. I mean, I don't know that, but reading between the text here. 
He was way too nice. You <laughs> should have had a sword and cut off a piece cut, of his ear. Cut off the ear, yeah. It looks like, you know, Paul is, you know, it's hard to say, but it looks like Paul is upset here that he's been struck. He's here in the Sanhedrin. He expects to be treated properly and so forth as a Jewish man. It looks like he kind of loses it. I don't know about what he says. He's, you know, this is pretty quick stuff here. Uh, but those who were standing near, verse 4, said, Well, how dare you insult Paul, uh, God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. You know, I didn't know who I was talking to here. For it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul cites Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight here. But the question is, why did Paul fail to recognize the high priest here? They're in the Sanhedrin. They're at a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Uh, people come up with various reasons. I mentioned one here about his eyesight. You remember one of the one of the uh, one of the things that people say about uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh that he mentions in Second Corinthians twelve, some physical malady that he had. One of the one of the things that some suggest is that maybe he had poor eyesight because he talks about sometimes signing his letters. And you see what big letters I write, you know, things like that. And they say, well, maybe Paul had poor eyesight. And maybe that's what happened. And maybe he just couldn't see here or so forth. Um, I don't think that's the case here because <clears throat> Luke does not, uh, Luke does not excuse Paul here. Luke is not averse to excusing Paul, his hero, when the time comes for that. If Paul has done nothing wrong here. Um, and I think he would have mentioned, I think, he might have mentioned if, that, that Paul just didn't know who he was, didn't, didn't recognize him because of his eyesight. Uh, another possible reason, obviously I, we believe what Paul says is true here. He didn't know he was the high priest, but why did he know it? It may be that this was not a regular meeting of a high priest. This is kind of an emergency called session where the Roman commander calls the, the people together Maybe the high priest is not sitting in his normal place. Maybe he is not in his official robes. Now, the truth is, Paul has not been in Jerusalem except sporadically for many, many years, remember? Paul has been on these missionary journeys. He's only come back occasionally. It's not like he could flip on, you know, <clears throat> Fox News and see what the high priest says, you know. So he, he wouldn't necessarily be familiar with what the, who the high priest would look like. He'd probably know who he was. Uh, but Paul might not have known in AD 58, this is about AD 58, who the high priest was because he'd only visited sporadically in the last 20 years. So I think that's more likely. He just failed to recognize him. And so all he could do is apologize. He apologizes. I'm sorry because the Bible says don't speak evil of the ruler of your people. Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, and the others, Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. Now, remember, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. My brothers, he's going to, Luke's going to tell us that in a moment in verse 8. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, neither are neither angels nor spirits, 
but the Pharisees believe all these things. So, um, as I say here, when Paul says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, Paul is not being deceitful here uh, when he says, that's what I'm on trial for. He's on trial because he's a Christian and he's been preaching Jesus, but that includes the resurrection of the dead. The phrase, when Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead, he's often talking about the, the gospel and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Um, for instance, if we were to take and look back at chapter 17, when we discussed Paul at Athens, you remember Paul is at the Areopagus, the council, Mars Hills, it's called in the King James. And he's there at the council. It says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But what was Paul talking about? Verse 31, previously. For he had set a day, he has set a day, God has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. So this phrase, resurrection of the dead, speaks about the resurrection of Christ, the judgment, the death of Christ, and so forth like that. So Paul says, uh, I'm, I'm on trial because of this hope of the resurrection of Christ, his death, and this future hope of the resurrection. Well, of course, this uh, causes quite an uproar, quite a dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Verse 9, there's a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and said, well, we found nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks, taking back to the fortress Antonia. I feel sorry for that. I just, I just feel so sorry for this commander because you know, he doesn't know what they're saying. He's let Paul speak to the people before, and that didn't settle anything. Now he's brought him before the Sanhedrin, and every time this Paul says something, it just causes a big uproar, a big fight, and, and you know he can't he can't get to the bottom of this situation. What is this guy done? I don't get it. So they take him back to the barracks. That's about all he can do. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, "Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem." So you must also testify in Rome. Now, I often wonder if this statement here, you will testify about me in Rome, is what persuades Paul to say to appeal to Caesar a little later. We're going to see this appeal to Caesar. And I wonder if this is one of the things that that makes Paul do what he does. Well, well there's other. There's another reason too, but I wonder if, think, think, remember this uh, what Paul, what the text says here about the angel uh, speaking to him. Uh, the, the Lord stood near Paul, it says, and take courage. Um, yeah, because the king was even going to let him go. Yes. If he wouldn't have already appealed. Appealed to Caesar, yeah, yeah. yeah. So now we see this plot to kill Paul in verses 12 through 22. 
The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They, were, they went to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we kill Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander, bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about the case. We'll, we are ready to kill him before he gets here. So, you know, Paul is in the Fortress Antonio, and they think, well, they're going to bring him somewhere, maybe around here, maybe, you know, somehow they're going to kill him in the streets or somewhere when he gets out. Of the, they can't do anything in the fortress. So as I say here, failing to their earlier plot to kill Paul, about 40 fanatical Jews, probably some of them from Asia, Jews had instigated the earlier plot, resolved to do away with him by ambushing him in maybe the narrow streets of Jerusalem. So they, they, want, they need a pretext to get him out of the fortress. So they arrange for the chief priests and elders to ask for Paul's return to the Sanhedrin so they can get ask him some more questions. And they said, we'll kill him. If you get him out of there, we'll kill him in the streets. Uh, but when the son of Paul's sister heard this, verse 16, when the son of Paul's sister heard this, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul told one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. As I mentioned here, we don't have any knowledge beyond this text of Paul's sister and his nephew, who's mentioned here. All we know is Paul has a sister in Jerusalem, and uh, he has a nephew. So he has family there. Remember, Paul was raised in Tarsus. And it's a little unclear when he came to Jerusalem. He was raised in Tar. He, he was born in Tarsus. And then he comes to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. We know that. And many think, well, that would be about, maybe about his 13th birthday, maybe, or something, bar mitzvah and so forth. Did his family come with him? Why is his sister here? You know, what, what's, all, what's all this about? We just don't, we, we'd love to know, you know. What, what's going on here, but we just know he has a sister here and maybe other family here in in Jerusalem. Um, so Paul was a Roman citizen under protective custody. So this is not unusual. He could receive visitors. People could see him. He actually been technically charged with a crime yet, and he was a Roman citizen. So certainly... Uh, this is not unusual for visitors to be able to come in and see him. And among them is his nephew. And when Paul gets this warning, he goes, of course, to the centurion. And the centurion goes to the commander. Uh, the centurion uh, said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring the young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man. By the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is this you want to tell me? And he repeats the story. Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush in an ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with the warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Well, 
that takes us then to Paul's imprisonment and defenses at Caesarea. Paul is whisked away to Caesarea. Verse 23, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be safely taken to Governor Felix. This sounds like a lot of people for just one little old Roman guy, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, it's kind of amazing in a way here what's going on here. We, we, it's hard to exactly figure because we know Paul is a Roman citizen and these are auxiliary troops. They are not regular legionary troops. We said, remember the commander said, I had to buy my citizenship. So most of these people aren't Roman citizens. They have a Roman citizen. They're not used to seeing Roman citizens. So they don't want some Roman citizen to die in their custody. You know, that would be bad business. It's certainly true. So maybe that's what accounts for it. I don't know. Unless there's something about Paul that we just don't know. That Paul has some heritage we don't know. He's related to some important family we don't know. Remember I said, we don't know what his real name is. Remember the Romans had those three names. A prynomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. We just know his cognomen, Paulus, but we don't know what his nomen is. So has Paul got some nomen that's important? That they recognize is important. And that's why we got these all, this, all these troops. I don't know. I don't know. But it certainly seems like a lot of a lot of troops for one little old Jewish guy, you know, to me. But we just don't know. But it's certainly a lot. So they decide, the commander says, uh, we're going to take this guy to Caesarea because that's where the Roman governor of Judea is, the governor Felix. Uh, I say here the governor, the commander could not risk having a Roman citizen assassinated but I wonder if there's more to it than this. So anyway, he says he's going to get Paul there as quickly as possible before the conspirators get wind of it. So he writes this letter, verse 25. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. That's not exactly true, you know. (laughs) He came down there to quell a disturbance in the temple. He was going to take him up into the fortress and beat him to death until he found out what he was, right? I mean, that's what really happened. But he makes it sound pretty good here, you know. But I found out he's a Roman citizen, so man, I jumped to it, you know. I want to know why they were accusing him. Um, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin, their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And when I was informed of a plot to be carried out this, against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. So they're on their way to Caesarea up here that we've seen before. And they go about halfway. They leave that night and they go to Antipatris. This is a town, as I say, built by Herod the Great in honor of his father Antipater. The exact location is somewhat questionable. 
they have there's some ruins, not much, but there's a first century street here that's they think is Antipater, where Antipater was at. It's, it's not exactly sure. Most authorities place it about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem, so it's usually put on the map about right here. But we don't actually have any, you know, any archaeological thing that says this is Antipater's here. But we think that's probably where it's at. This is probably the location there. So when the conspirators were left behind and the ambush was less likely, the infantry turns back. Uh, They brought him to Antipatris, verse 32. The next day they let the cavalry go with him while they returned to the barracks. So the infantry returned, the foot soldiers returned to Jerusalem. The cavalry took Paul to Caesarea some 40 miles away. When, they, when, when, when the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to them. So the next day, they go up to Caesarea and deliver Paul to the governor. Um, verse 34, the governor read the letter and asking and asked what, the prov- what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia... He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be held under guard in Herod's palace. Um, As I say here, had Paul been from one of the client kingdoms in Syria or Asia, minor, Felix would probably have wanted to consult the ruler of the kingdom. But on learning that Paul was from the Roman province of Cilicia, he felt confident as a presidential governor to hear the case himself when Paul accusers arrived from Jerusalem. In the meantime, he's kept under guard here in the palace of Herod the Great, built for him at Caesarea. Uh, it's now served as the governor's headquarters and all had, also had held cells for prisoners. We looked at some pictures of Caesarea before. There's the palace, called the Promontory Palace, because it's on this piece of land that juts out there. We've seen some scenes of this. There's the palace remains. There's the theater. According to descriptions, this is what it was like. The statue here in the center. That's what's left of it today, if you were to go there. Just some rock remains. But you can see it looks a lot like that, somewhat somewhat like that diagram there, the palace there. So Paul is taken into the palace... This palace had cells, cells for prisoners, and he's ordered to be held there. Now we see uh, Paul's defense before the governor, Felix. Um, five days later, the high priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders. Remember, you go, you're going north from Jerusalem, but you always go down because Jerusalem is higher up. Caesarea is low by the coast. So you're going north from Jerusalem, but you're going down geographically, uh, topographically. So they come with a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Uh, when Paul was before was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Uh, I mentioned Felix here. We know a little bit about him. 
as I say, Antonius Felix was born a slave and freed by Antonia, the mother of the Emperor Claudius. So here's a slave who rises, who rises to become a, a governor. Now that's extremely rare, and it's only because this person is a slave in the in the in the uh, emperor's household, and, and, you know, in the emperor uh, household. So this this fellow was born a slave, and probably well educated because he's in the emperor's household. He is well educated and so forth. He was a brother of Phallus, uh, Pallas, who was also a freedman of Antonia and became a good friend of the young Prince Claudius. Claudius, remember, was uh, the uh, Roman governor at this time in, 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 in the imperial household. Through the influence of Pallas in AD 48, Felix was appointed to a subordinate government post in Samaria. In 52, Claudius appointed him governor of Judea an office usually reserved for freedmen of the Roman equestrian order, but which he obtained through intrigue and the support of the Roman of, of Syria. Despite his low birth, Felix had a succession of three wives. The third was Drusilla, the youngest daughter of Agrippa I. And if you remember on our chart here, we've got Herod the Great. We talked about Antipater. And uh, we talked about his sons. Well, we talk, have talked a little bit about them. Three of his sons actually ruled. Then Herod Agrippa I, he was the Herod of Acts 12, you remember. We talked about he was eaten by worms. And now we're going to see about Herod Agrippa II in a second. But this Herod Agrippa I, uh, his daughter Drusilla, um, there you can see his Herod Agrippa II, we'll see him in a second. But one of his daughters was Drusilla, and she marries Felix. So Felix marries into an important family here, a uh, very important family uh, in, in, the, in the province. Um, now, we know something about him from history. We know that during his governorship, there was a lot of unrest, a lot of uprisings. You know, Judea was always a problem province. It was always Jews were re re revolting and there were, there were problems and difficulties. <laughs> he tried to put these down, but he didn't have a lot of success. He instituted very brutal methods, we're told. He alienated a lot of the Jewish population. This led to further disturbances. He just couldn't quite get the place under control as much as he wanted to and as much as he tried. So we know a little bit about him. So Paul is, comes before him. And uh, Paul says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. <laughs> okay, Paul. <laughs> I think this is Paul the politician here. You know, you know, it, you've been, a, you know, what's, I guess, you know, what's Paul going to say? You're an idiot governor, my friend, but, you know, here I am. You know? <laughs> no, he says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in the nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix... We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So this is Tertullus, you know, uh, making this, saying all this stuff that's really probably not true about Felix, but being a pretty good politician here. We found this man, verse 5, uh, to be a troublemaker. Now, Paul, as I say here, he lays three charges against Paul. 
The first two, disturbing the peace. This man is a troublemaker stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. So this guy is just a bad guy, a bad dude. He's stirring up trouble everywhere all over the Roman Empire among the Jews. Uh, so first he's disturbing the peace. He's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Uh, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to hear the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So I says, so I, so I mentioned here on page 42, verses 5 and 6, that the charges are disturbing the peace, being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. This is intended to give the impression of political sedition. Now Rome is very, they, they, they will punish that. If you're making an uprising against Rome, they'll crucify you in a second. So they're trying to make it look like Paul is a troublemaker for the Roman Empire. He's just causing trouble. He's, he's disturbing the peace. The, remember the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that expression? The Romans were big on keeping the peace. We don't want these uprisings and so forth. Uh, so they're trying to get the impression of political sedition against Rome to argue the right for Judaism to impose the death penalty in the third charge attempting to desecrate the temple. So he should he's, he's worthy of death because he is this troublemaker, this seditious guy, and uh, disturbing the Pax Romana, and he has desecrated the temple. And you'll examine him, you'll find these charges are true. And as I say, Felix, we know Felix had was a well-known crucifier. He was he crucified a lot of people during his reign who disturbed the peace, who troublemakers, uh, revolutionaries, all kinds of people. So Tertullius is appealing to Felix. This is another guy just like the ones you've crucified in the past. There's nothing new here. Well, the other charges, the other Jews joined in in the accusation asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned, verse 10, for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So Paul's going to refute each of these charges in turn. The first I say here was that no more than 12 days ago that he came to Jerusalem, not for political agitation, but for worship. In such a short time, it would be insufficient. It wouldn't have time to, to instigate a revolt in 12 days. You know, he couldn't be this troublemaker who's all causing all this trouble in 12 days. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. So as I say, second, his accusers could hardly charge him being a ringleader of any sedition, for he was alone when they arrested him in the temple, and they could not cite at any time he was stirring up a crowd anywhere in the city. And they cannot prove you to you the charges they are now making against me. So this charge that he desecrated the temple is unproved, it's without foundation. So Paul's refuting here very well each one of these charges. 14, however, I admit that I am a worshiper of God of, of the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written, with the, written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. 
So the reason Ananias, as I say, and the Jewish elders opposed Paul, Paul says was religious. It's not any of this sedition. It's not that I'm stirring up trouble. It's religious. I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect, and that's the whole reason they want to kill me, get rid of me. He says, uh, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor. That statement probably gets Paul in a little trouble here, too, in a moment here. To bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia ought to be here before you and bring the charges if they have any against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's coming concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So as I say here under 18 through 21, he insists that these Asian Jews who instigated this riot, they should be present here. And Roman law, just like sort of American law, you know, if you make serious charges against somebody, you better be there in court to back up those charges. You know, are they going to, you could be in trouble if you make those kind of charges. And so Roman law imposed heavy penalties upon accusers who abandoned their charges. And the fact that they're not here suggests that these charges wouldn't stand up in a court of law. He says the Sanhedrin didn't find any crime. They haven't reported any crime, except that I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that's why I'm on trial here, Paul says. Then Felix, verse 22, was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of him. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Remember this, these were wicked people. And you remember what I said, Paul said earlier when Paul says, listen, I came to Jerusalem to bring gifts and offerings. So I came with money. And so, you know, Felix is thinking, hey, this guy's got some money. I don't find anything wrong with him. If he could come up with a few bucks, we could work something out here. You know, we could, we could find a way to get him out of this kind of thing. <clears throat> So Paul is speaking to Felix here. Uh, he spoke, as I say, I spoke involved in ethical way of life because he spoke about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. Felix seems to be under conviction here. He's afraid. He, he doesn't like what Paul is saying here. But even though he's under conviction, he doesn't like it. He's so corrupt that he's willing to endure this suffering, <laughs> hearing Paul preach, you know, to try to get that money, you know, hoping Paul will give him some sort of bribe. So he had to believe that Paul had some some funds that he could give to Felix. 
Well, verse 27, after two years had passed, can you believe this? Here's Paul. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he kept Paul in prison. So this was, uh, Felix was uh, replaced by Festus in A.D. 60. So here's two years that Paul is in Caesarea. Remember I said Luke, we don't know what Luke is doing. It's not a we section, but Luke is clearly there because when Paul goes to, to on, gets on the ship to go, as a prisoner of Rome, Luke is with him. So Luke is around there somewhere. Maybe he's beginning to write Luke Acts at this time and so forth during this period. Well, then Paul, after two years, under house arrest there, under the prison, in the governor's mansion there in Caesarea, there's a new governor that comes, Festus. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. I say nothing is known of Portius Festus before he assumed the governorship of Judea. We don't know anything about his background or anything. He goes to Jerusalem from the capital, the Roman capital of Caesarea, to the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and pre presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were prepared to an ambush to kill him along the way. So they were thinking, this is an inexperienced governor, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Let's let him transfer him down here to Jerusalem, and we'll get this guy killed and get this situation over with. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong they can press charges against him there. So it doesn't work. He doesn't fall for that. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court, ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews, who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So we're back to where we were again. We've got these... Jewish guys coming in. They've got Festus is convening his court here. And uh, they've got these charges that they're making against Paul. But again, they can't produce any witnesses. They can't prove their charges. Uh, you know, they've got these charges against that Paul is a seditious person. He's caused disturbances all over the Roman Empire. They, they just can't prove any of these, that he's broken Roman law. They can't prove that he's really broken some serious Roman law. So Paul continues to uh, uh, claim his innocence. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. So they were at this impasse again. While Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and strand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court while I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are true, no one has the right to to hand me over to them, I appeal to Caesar. 
Um, so Festus here, he doesn't know what to do. He's going to kind of give in to the Jews, let Paul be transferred down to Jerusalem, see what can come of that. Um, I don't think he, you know, probably fully was aware of, of what's going on here. Maybe it's hard to know um, if he, you know, what would happen when he transferred to Judea. Um, about the change of venue and so forth. Um, but Paul here, notice, he appeals to Caesar. Uh, we talked about the fact earlier that uh, the Lord had stood before Paul earlier and said, you will testify to me in Rome also. I guess that was on Paul's mind. But my guess is, you know, my guess is that Paul may look, see the way the wind's blowing here. Festus wants me to go to Jerusalem. And that looks like the way things are going, you know. Festus asked me, do I want to go to Jerusalem? Are you willing to go to Jerusalem? You know, and Paul knows if he goes to Jerusalem, he probably doesn't have a chance. He knows they'll probably kill him on the way. Because we've already know they had a plot to ambush him in Jerusalem already. Certainly they'll kill him on the way to Jerusalem. So my guess is Paul sees this... Um, sees this as, you know, a real possibility. What's Paul's trying to make a calculation here. What should I do? Uh, God hadn't told him what to do. <laughs> you know, all we know that God has told him so far is, you will testify to me at Jerusalem. He knows that, knows he's going to Jerusalem. And so he's trying to think about the legal situation of what do I do? Do I agree to go down to Jerusalem? Would you agree? I wouldn't. Because you know that's not going to settle anything. You know, you've already been down there before the Sanhedrin, right? You've been down there already. They're not going to give you a fair trial, so there's nothing to be gained there. I, I kind of think he's sort of doing about the only thing he can, yes. <clears throat> Weren't those 40 guys getting hungry about this time? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a problem, isn't it? <laughs> it's been two years, hasn't it? <laughs> it's been two years. Maybe they weren't uh, as fastidious in keeping their promises as you know they should have been. Um, so we do know that uh, that a person could appeal. A Roman citizen was protected. Because you could be out there in one of the provinces and you could come under some local official and you could be in, you know, they could they could uh, not give you a fair trial. So Roman citizens out there in these provinces where you don't really have Romans in charge, you have maybe a, a governor, but you don't really have Roman officials, Roman people, Roman citizens, um, they had the right to appeal to Caesar. Now that doesn't mean that they saw the emperor himself, but it means you appeal to the court. You appeal to Rome. You go before the emperor's court, before the officials there, and you get a hearing there rather than, you know, it's sort of like what we do in a sense. People appeal up the chain to courts. You know, they, they go before a local court. They don't get the decision. Then they appeal to the next highest court and so forth. Well, Roman citizens could uh, invoke the right of appeal to Caesar if it involves some uh, major uh, crime, some capital crime, usually. Capital trials. You couldn't, you know, if you stole an apple, you couldn't appeal to Caesar. 
But this is a capital crime. They want to kill this guy. They want to put him to death. And so in that kind of case, a capital crime, he could appeal to Caesar. So after Festus, uh, verse 12, had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Well, now uh, Festus consults with Herod Agrippa II. Um, As I say here, although it had now been settled that Paul would be sent to the higher authorities in Rome, Festus was still left with a problem. What exactly would he write to the Roman authorities as to the exact charges against Paul that would require the adjudication of the imperial council? Why are you sending this guy here? What are the charges against this particular person? Uh, you know, why, why, why bother sending this guy unless he's done something very seriously wrong? Well, verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Here's that chart again. The King Agrippa we're talking about is Herod Agrippa II here and his sister Bernice. Remember, his other sister Drusilla is married to the previous Roman governor. As I say here, Marcus Julius Agrippa II was the son of Agrippa I, the grandson of Aristobulus, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was brought up at Rome in the court of Claudius, the emperor, and like his father, was a favorite of the emperor. At his father's death in 44, he was only 17 years old, too young to rule over his father's domains. Therefore, and Herod Agrippa I, I don't have his map here, but he was governor over this entire territory. Herod Agrippa I had all of this. Herod Agrippa I had the entire area back in his control. He's too young at that age. Uh, therefore, Palestine became a Roman province to the, be administered by a Roman governor. And that's why there's a Roman governor here in Caesarea that we're talking about right now who's controlling Judea here, the province of Judea. In 50, however, following the death of his uncle, Claudius appointed Agrippa II king of Chalcis, a petty kingdom to the northeast of Judea up here. So he first of all appoints him king of this. So he's giving him little bits of land because he's a favorite of Claudius. Uh, in 53, Claudius gave him the Tetrarchy of Philip, Abilene, Tetronitis, Acre, in exchange for the kingdom of Chalcis. In 56, Nero, the next emperor, added to his kingdom the Galilean cities of Terrakia and Tiberias with the surrounding lands and the Perean cities of Julius. So he's got this, sort of most of this land here. Tiberius down here from this land of Galilee. Sort of got most of that there. Um, as a ruler of the adjoining kingdom to the north, Herod Agrippa II came to pay his respects to Festus, the new governor of Judea. With Agrippa II was Bernice, his sister, one year younger than himself. She had been married to her uncle, Herod, the king of Chalcis, but his death in AD 50, she came to live with her brother Agrippa. The Romans... Historians say there was an incestuous, incestuous relationship between him and his sister. 
Um, so verse 14, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Festus left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that I, he be condemned. I told them that it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have their opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When the accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. So you're expecting here them to say something about he has done something seditious against Rome. He's broken some Roman law. He's created, he's rebelled against Rome. He's done something that deserves punishment, execution. Um, but no, instead, verse 19, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So we see Paul's defense here before Herod Agrippa II. Um, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come in, great pomp, and enter the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with us, will you see this, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. And that he ought, and I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to Caesar, I've decided to send him to Rome. I have nothing, verse 26, to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa. So as a result of this investigation, you may have, we may have, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. I think it is too. I think you'd be in big trouble if you don't have something to write, you know. Verse 26. I mean, chapter 26, I'm sorry. Um, then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Um, Paul's in chains here, as I mentioned, verse 29, because Paul will say later, I wish everybody was like me except for these chains here. So Paul is in chains, and he motioned with his hands for them to, you know, listen. Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Um, from what we know historically Agrippa was considered something of authority on Jewish law I didn't read earlier but back on verse 14 um, Claudius had given Agrippa the title curator of the temple with the power to depose and appoint the high priest so he's supposed to have some knowledge of Jewish law you know he's in the Jewish uh, the Herodian line and so forth so I'm sure that Festus is hoping that this guy who knows something about Judaism, Jewish law, can figure this out and give me something to write to the emperor. Uh, and so Paul says, uh, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense. 
against all these accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well accustomed with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a while, a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. Not because of some some sedition against Rome. This is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. They should, any of that you can, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I quote here from Longnecker here, verses 4 through 8. Longnecker says, it was not in spite of his Jewish heritage, but Paul insisted because of it that he believed and proclaimed what he did. So he began with the body of his address by drawing together his Pharisaic background and his Christian commitment, arguing that the Jewish hope and the Christian message are not inseparably related. It was because of the Jewish hope and the resurrection of the dead he was being tried. And the ironic thing was that the charges against him were brought by, of all people, the Jews themselves. It's amazing. Here's a guy who's speaking about what the Jews are hoping for, and they're bringing the charges. He says, verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put in prison, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authorities. This is his third description of his conversion. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. We all fell to the, fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I mentioned this is the only one place in the accounts where Paul says it's hard to kick against the goads. I say this is a well-known expression, a well-known expression, Greek expression in Greek literature for opposition to a deity. A goad was a stick used to prod and direct an animal. Jesus is asking Paul why he's kicking against God's discipline and direction. Thus, Paul demonstrates to Herod Agrippa and his associates the real significance of what he himself realized, his encounter with Christ on the Damascus roads. He is encountering God here. And God is, is the one who is telling him and telling him what to do and so forth. Uh, then I asked, who are you, Lord? He says. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Let's stop there, and we'll pick up Paul's testimony next time. And